from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Michael Lucy of the Comparative Literature and French Departments discussing his book, Someone, The Pragmatics of Misfit Sexualities from Colette to Hervé Guibert. He is joined by Catherine Flynn of the English Department. Thanks for inviting me to talk with Michael about his new book, which was really a pleasure to read, and I think it's really going to be a pleasure to talk about it with him and uh, you today. So I prepared a little intro to the book for those of you who haven't managed to read it yet, so that you, you know, get a sense of the, the parameters and the, um, the goals of this book. So um, published with University of Chicago Press this year, Michael Lucy's book is called Someone, the Pragmatics of Misfit Sexualities from Colette to Hervé Guibert. So this book argues that sexuality is not just what we do and who we do it with, or how we understand and represent that to ourselves and to others, but that it is also, to varying degrees, what we cannot understand or represent. Michael's book thus explores manifestations of sexualities that do not conform with normative definitions, even with more recently adapted and now dominant forms of non-heteronormative sexual identities. The sexualities Michael explores in this book exist outside of socially shared and linguistic denotable positions and practices. They present, he argues, in ways that are pragmatic rather than semantic, in register, tone, implicit frames of reference, and so on. To locate and discuss these eccentric, and you might even say loner, sexualities, he assembles a critical practice with concepts from Bourdieu, Foucault, Merleau-Ponty, Irving Goffman, Michael Silverstein, Michael Warner, to name actually not all of them. <laughs> this book is unusual in the discursive, um, discursive sophistication it mobilizes to examine the non-discursive with the role of paying compassionate attention to individuals who fail to belong. So as Michael writes, someone, inverted commas, the word, stands throughout the present book as a token not only of the misfit, whose utterances struggle to enact something in language for which there are no readily available words, but also of the hope for an interlocutor who would, who would prove capable of understanding an evanescent message about the experience of sexuality that cannot be stated in so many words, but that is nonetheless being put forth in language in the hopes of founding a community of shared understanding, however small, however awkward, however fleeting. As these lines suggest, with their reference to the shared, evanescent, and fleeting, the book's exploration of these misfit sexualities does not generalize them as social or sexual revolutionaries or situate them in triumphant progressive narratives. He describes in an even-handed way how some of these figures extend literary and discursive fields in new ways, but also how it comes about that others fall into some of the conservative and even homophobic formations of their time. This is another of the fascinating capacities of the book, as it examines literature as the place where sexualities that are not registered in languages referential propositional functioning find some presence. Um, it examines literature as the place in which indexical or pragmatic functioning of language is activated it situates literary texts within broader sets of mobile and heterogeneous discursive fields and embodied practices in French culture and society between 1930 and 1990. Someone is a compelling and even moving work that shows us how literature offers us implicit frameworks with which to organize and reorganize our perceptions of sexuality. Its significance for everyone is signified in these lines from Michael, Michael's book that I'll read now. Um, he's talking about Simone de Beauvoir's novel, L'Invité, um, The Invited, or She Came to Stay. L'Invité might be taken as a novel about the way nameable and unnameable forms of sexuality wash through all of us and provide only some with a context in which to manifest our sexuality as a text that others can read. Whereas others manifest in fragmentary ways 
pieces of a variety of sexual forms that may or may not suffice, but that don't amount to anything easily cognizable, recognizable, or contextualizable for most people around us. So I am delighted to talk some more with Michael um, about this book. So, <laughs> um, so Michael, could you say a little bit more about how the ideas for the book emerge from your earlier writing? Um, for example, in your previous book, Never Say I, you write in the introduction. Um, you write in this introduction that um, about your discussion of Colette's articulation of social categories that women can inhabit, but only temporarily, and then not admittedly or avowedly. So how is the focus of this book different? Yeah, so in, in that earlier, when I started writing that earlier book, Never Say I, I thought it would probably be a book about the whole 20th century, about a, a problem that I kind of saw in French literature where same-sex sexualities became um, topicalized. They became a thing that could signify that a literary work was serious because it was, um, it was treating that topic. And that, to me, was in itself an interesting phenomenon. How, do you, how does a, a, a topic like same-sex sexuality become um, a sign that something belongs to serious literature? Like, why would that happen in France? And, and so I had this idea that I, would, that I would deal with that across the whole 20th century because the 20th century starts with a couple major figures like Colette and Gide and Proust who are instrumental in making this happen, uh, but then it, it, it just goes on, and there are there are, there are more figures like Genet and um, Hervé Guibert and um, uh, and well, Violette Leduc we can come back to, but Monique Wittig. So there are so there's a, a long tradition um, in French literature where seriousness of literary purpose can be linked to the um, working on the question of same-sex sexuality, but. After I wrote the first book and I started working on what I thought was its sequel, I started working on Simone de Beauvoir and I started learning about Marguerite Duras's relationship with the, um, a, a much younger gay man who became her intimate, um, her intimate, I don't even know what else to say. And, uh, and I was working on Violette Le Duc and Violette Le Duc, there's always been a question, is it right to call her a lesbian writer or not? Um, and, and I realized that, um, I, I was now dealing with um, questions that, that I had never seen exactly stated in this way of people who didn't fit in. Um, so th the problem was the same, that you were topicalizing uh, uh, same-sex sexuality in various ways, but the problem had shifted something. It wasn't the effort to topicalize it. It was the, the, the way in which once it had been topicalized, it, um, it was a problem uh, for people. Um, and so Simone de Beauvoir, of course, uh, uh, the material that I started working on about Simone de Beauvoir was just the, the greatest instance of that since um, she wrote this novel, which when people read it, uh, when it came out um, during the occupation in France, everybody who knew her and knew anything about her because people lived their private lives somewhat in public in her circles, understood that it was a book about her relationships with some of the young women who had been her students. Um, so they understood that about the book, even though if you maybe didn't know that, if you, didn't, if you weren't a person in Paris who was current on all of the gossip about Simone de Beauvoir and her circle, the novel might not have told you that it was about that. But then people, but then Violette Leduc would read the novel much more distantly, and she would say, I'm sure Simone de Beauvoir loves women, or something like that. So the, the novel, I would see this novel have a variety of effects on differently positioned readers. And I would see also that it would mean differently depending on um, what else people had read, who they knew, that, that kind of question. And so a novel that wasn't explicitly about same-sex sexuality then would be about same sexuality for some people given certain circumstances. And so that problem of meaning, how meaning happens, somehow blossomed into this book. Yeah. So um, I'm going to ask you in a minute about how you developed a critical practice with which to analyze in a fine-grained and um, broad way, um, you know, in broad in its ambit, how meaning develops and circulates around these texts and in these texts. But I, I want to start first with um, uh, maybe more uh, a discussion of the thematics. And so 
you know, you talk about Simone de Beauvoir as this, you know, and we all know her to be a preeminent figure in French literary circles at the time, and who was actually friends with Villette Le Duc, who is in many ways the, at the absolute opposite end of the literary spectrum <laughs> in certain ways. And so can you talk, for me, Violette Le Duc is one of the most moving and fascinating characters. I mean, they're all very fascinating. But in this book, can you talk about how she embodies um, the tensions that you're interested in exploring in someone? Violette Le Duc, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, she's quite um, an interesting figure, in part because she seems to me um, an immensely weighty and important figure in 20th century French literature, but not everybody is aware of that, <laughs> or something like that. Um, uh, uh, what's interesting about it is that she, of course, comes from an extremely impoverished background, so there was no, um, it was a challenge for her to come to be a lit occupy a place in the literary landscape. And um, uh, it was something that happened to her relatively late in life. And it was one of those things where, uh, when she was lucky enough to be, by a series of coincidences in a certain way, to be recognized by a number of serious, already serious literary people, and they would read her writing and they would say, You're, you are a serious writer, you should write more. Uh, and then they would arrange for her to be published. So right away she was published in very prestigious places, her, in a series edited by Albert Camus for her first novel. Um, and then the novel was a total flop. Uh, no, it got terrible reviews. Only a very small select of really in the know kind of people would read her novels and like them. Uh, and that, of course, dis she was a very fragile person, uh, so it was very difficult for her that. But then the other thing was that one of the things that people liked about her writing was that she took up a series of very difficult issues in her writing. So she took up the issue of um, same-sex relationship between schoolgirls and between schoolgirls and also between schoolgirls and their teachers, uh, and so that was challenging um, for the public of the time or for the gatekeepers, you could say, of the time. And also, she took up the the question of abortion. Uh, and so, in one of her early novels, it began with um, scenes in a school, and later it, it portrayed an abortion. And um, Gallimard refused to publish those scenes, um, and so. Le Duc experienced that very personally. Um, uh, so she had, she would, she thought of herself as a person who was bringing a certain kind of women's female experience to literature that men had already been able to bring. So she thought of herself as a parallel to Jean Genet in certain ways. So he had already been able to bring certain experiences to literary representation that um, that hadn't. Uh, been there before, and then she thought she was going to be able to do the same thing, and then a censorship was applied to her that hadn't been applied to other people, and that um, really, people say, drove her to a nervous breakdown. She was a very um, fragile person already. Um, but there's uh, something about it. There's this, um, uh, what's interesting to me about Violet Le Duc is there's this little quote that I like from Pierre Bourdieu that comes at the beginning of the book where he says, um, Narratives about the most personal difficulties, the apparently most strictly subjective tensions and contradictions, frequently articulate the deepest structures of the social world and their contradictions. This is never so obvious as it is for occupants of precarious positions who turn out to be extraordinary practical analysts, situated at points where social structures work, and therefore worked over by the contradictions of these structures. These individuals are constrained in order to live or to survive, to practice a kind of self-analysis which often gives them access to the objective contradictions which have them in their grasp, and to the objective structures expressed in and by these contradictions. And it felt to me like Bourdieu could be describing Violette Le Duc uh, when he wrote that, that her writing is mad in certain ways, um, but also lucid, right? There's a lucidity about how the social structures have wreaked havoc on her. Um, so, and then I guess the point that makes her all of that makes her interesting for the book. But then what goes on to make her interesting for the book is that she was extremely lucid also about her own sexuality in the way that um, it made no sense in the categories that the world offered, right? So she had relationships with men, she had relationships with women, they were overdetermined by all sorts of other <coughs> variables having to do with um, you know, class, region, 
status, all sorts of things. So she had a sense of, she had a, a sense of the complexity of sexuality, that it wasn't a thing in itself, that it was this complicated construction, and that, um, and that she understood that she would never fit in. So she, she understood a kind of a misfittedness about herself, and she made it her effort, or her project in a certain way, to display that, but then also in displaying it, to just have enough critical distance from the display that was going on that you could say that she was working on that problem. Yeah. Yeah, I love the way you characterize her as, um, say, her relations to literature and the literary world, to authors and to writing, are illegitimate, unorthodox, inappropriately sensual, insufficiently intellectual. And that while literature is a kind of locus of fervor for her, both as a reader and a writer, it's also weirdly a place where she wants to make a lot of money. Yeah. So she brings all of these sort of inappropriate, given the cultural field, desires to writing that uh, cannot be fulfilled. And so she's destined only to have a counterpublic. And the counterpublic that um, she creates, well, one of them emerges only to disappear again, embodied in one instance in the, the three high school boys who she writes with and who come to Paris. And she ends up in a hotel room for three days with one of them. And it's very strange, very strange and very, um, it's both poignant and also kind of uh, inspiring to see her follow these desires. Yeah. Um, but they're intermittent, ambiguous, shifting. <coughs> this is very complex. Yeah. 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 So in the quotation you read from the um, frontispiece of your book, uh, you touch on the um, critical apparatus you put in place. And so I would say that some of the key concepts that you assemble are the notions of um, cultural fields from Bourdieu, of um, pragmatics and metapragmatics um, from Pierce, and uh, to some extent Bourdieu, but a few other figures, um, and also the idea of, um, um, uh, hang on, there was another one I was going to mention. Well, <laughs> sorry, it just gave me right now. But do you want to talk about how these fit together? Um, how you kind of assemble a whole. There's also, you know, backstage and onstage, but there's um, uh, something else that's really critical. There are other critical terms too. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's interesting because there's something about, uh, there's something, there, there's a set of tools that I needed in order to be able to talk about sexuality, the way that sexuality exists in culture um, in, but, uh, and in language, but sexuality exists in language in the non-propositional parts of language, right? So people, as they are talking, make sexuality happen or actualize sexuality in their talking. But when we are talking, um, we aren't just, we have a bias towards the propositions that are forming our statements. But in fact, so many other things are going on as we talk besides just the propositional level. And sexuality happens on all those other channels, you could say often. And so that, problem was interesting to me, and I needed tools to be able to talk about it. Um, the interesting thing is then that the, the tools that help you to talk about it um, are useful in thinking about literature as language in general, not just sexuality. So there's a way in which the, the method of the book, I think, has, a, um, has, has something to say to the way that we think about literature as a particular use of language. Um, beyond the, the question of sexuality in general. But the, just the, the, the so the, the tools come in part from Bourdieu and in part from linguistic anthropology. And Bourdieu has this really nice, it's like the first sentence of his book called Pascalian Meditations. And he says something like, it's because we are implicated in the world that there is implicit stuff in what we act, how we act, and in what we say. And uh, I don't necessarily like the, you know, the to go into that genealogical thing, or that, not, the etymological thing, but implicit, you know, if, if you know French, then you know that it has the word pli in it, right? And it, so it's a, a folding inward. And so, and implicated also has that folding inward sense. And so when Bourdieu says we are implicated in the world, what he means is that the world has been folded into us in a certain way. Um, we've absorbed the world. And so when we talk and when we act, the way that we've absorbed the world is present implicitly in the way that we talk and act. And so then the question is, how do you get at implicitness? Um, so implicitness is important 
for understanding how sexuality operates. But implicitness is also just a thing that happens in language all the time. And so my interest in that regard was both when is literature itself interested in implicitness and how does it engage with that interest of implicitness? But also, if we are thinking, uh, uh, if we are people who are interested in objects that are made out of language, how do we make sure that we are as attentive to the implicitness of yeah. the object as, the, as to just what it says? Yeah. yeah. I mean, literature emerges as really crucial in this aspect because, you know, particularly in regard to the idea that you take from Merleau-Ponty, that the manifestation of the individual exceeds any intellectual representative or, or theoretical capacities of the first person. So that we're not capable consciously, um, conceptually, of encapsulating ourselves, of giving expression to ourselves. And so we have recourse to existing frames of reference, ways of speaking, but those ways of speaking are not just conceptual, they're also gestural. They're also indexical, to use another term you use for a kind of, um, a kind of deprived semantic content, or a sort of uh, content that is less semantic than other, than um, non-propositional. And so literature becomes a really rich place, then, or the richness of literature is really activated um, by this question of what is implied rather than said. But what's very interesting about your book is that it investigates these literary moments within larger contexts um, of critical reception, of you know, behind the stage exchanges between writers about what they're doing um, in order to understand what kinds of um, discourses are mobilized or what kinds of attitudes are infusing um, these works. So it was very interesting to read um, de Beauvoir's exchanges with Sartre about the use of the third person and that they took from Dos Passos. So they felt in a kind of different way to Merleau-Ponty that the first person cannot encapsulate themselves, that they are in some ways victim to certain stories about themselves, but that once you cast yourself in the third person, your moments of bad faith, your intellectual laziness, your um, moral or political hypocrisy becomes exposed. And so they use the third person in order to recast what seem like straightforward, understandable events and statements as in some ways um, requiring further reflection and some kind of uh, uh, enhanced kind of political and ethical honesty. But what you argue then is um, when de Beauvoir uses that in her fiction, it actually, the third person becomes a space in which what she cannot articulate about herself and her sexuality is rehearsed in some ways. It, it, it echoes or it, it's present in this um, depersonalized space that she's creating in her fiction. And this is, these, you know, these are, say, sexual encounters with uh, younger women that she will disavow later in The Second Sex, where she writes about the lesbian. Um, and it was really very interesting to bring these into contrast, where there's a kind of taxonomy of the lesbian or description, a kind of quasi-anthropological, that's very othering, and that she just doesn't identify with. But that as a woman who has sex with other women, but not exclusively, she has a very problematic relationship to or a kind of confusion about how to situate herself um, with regard to. Yeah, I mean, I think so. That 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 whole episode where Sartre and and Beauvoir are talking a lot about the novels that they're writing and they're trying to use a kind of a free and direct discourse and they're imagining for them free and direct discourse is a kind of a a harsh version of a self critique or some ideology critique. Yeah. They view free and direct discourse as a as a as a as a as a, a form of critique. Um, that's the way they would like it to operate. But um, uh, the problem is that uh, when you use the third person in that way, nonetheless more is expressed than you know. So it, so it doesn't actually solve the problem, it just postpones the problem a little further. And, and that seems especially true ab about um, Beauvoir's relationship to her own sexuality that, I mean, it, it would be conceivable, you know, it would have been conceivable um, her book seems to have her. The novel seems to have a very clear understanding that there are, are that there are you know bars in Montmartre that you go to if you're a lesbian, uh, and then there are places in Montparnasse that you go to if you're a woman who sleeps with women. Like she doesn't actually say it per se, but the novel structures her. You can see her understanding is structured that way. Um, so 
that understanding is present in the way that the novel is structured, but there's no sense that the free and direct discourse of the novel, the third personalization of the novel, has given any critical access to that structure that is there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this, that's an example of the implied practical knowledge that um, pertains to these misfit sexualities that you're examining this book. Yeah. Um, um, can you talk a little bit about temporality in this book? So in the first chapter, you talk about Colette and her, um, um, the importance the ladies of Langolin play, yeah. um, especially vis-a-vis -vis what she, uh, a contemporary, contemporary to her, female sexuality, um, uh, same-sex, female same-sex sexuality that she is put off by. So, um, can you talk a little bit more about about time and yeah, and how it might your approach to temporality in this book or your observation of the kind of temporal functioning of these texts is perhaps different to other kinds of temporalities associated with queerness? I think there are lots of right. So. Uh, Somewhere in the introduction, I think I cite this uh, passage from Jose Munoz that I, li I like a lot, where he says, so the queer, I, in the introduction I talk about why I, I use the word misfit sexualities instead of queer. So what Jose says is that the, the queer present, is something like this, is a moment where you see fragments of the past that you can assemble in order to put together some futural utopian imagining that would be a, a, a space that is, you know, that would harbor a, a, a kind of queerness that is difficult to assemble like in your present moment. So the past is a resource, the present is difficult, the future um, is utopian, something like that. Um, and, and so I like that model a lot. I just notice that um, it doesn't play out that way for everybody in the book, right? So that Colette, when she's reading about the ladies of Langolan who are these uh, Irish women who fled <coughs> Ireland to Wales, where they set up a household from themselves in the mid-18th century and became iconic figures across Europe for having done this and were visited by many people. Um, and so um, for Colette, what she sees in her present is an emerging culture of lesbianism in which she feels out of place. And so the past is the... Um, place that she would go back to, and the future is almost uh, one of dread, right? So um, so that would maybe be one way of explaining why you would say call her maybe, a, that there's something that she's interested in, her misfittedness rather than a queerness, the way that it often gets evoked in, 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 in work that's inspired by Jose Munoz's work, for instance. Um, I'm trying to think of what another example is. Hmm. I mean, I guess what I thought for many of the figures in the book, for a variety of reasons, the future was foreclosed. So there was no, there was no sense that uh, that they were borrowing from the past in order to make a more livable present that might emerge as a as a queer future. Yeah. The, the future seemed foreclosed yeah. for many of these. Violet Le Duc, you know, when she when she riffs on Proust and says, "The past has no nourishment for me." Oh, that's another great example. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm, we're gonna, I'm gonna open it up to questions. I just want to ask you first, um, what you want people to really take from this book? Like how, what kind of effect would you like this book to have in the discursive fields in which it's going to move? Yeah. Hmm. I, I mean, I. I mean, I, I guess I would say just in terms of not in terms of, say, sexuality studies, but in terms of critical practice. Um, I'm, there's, there's a moment in the book, for instance, where I'm thinking about how we today would understand what a novel like L'Invité would mean, right? Or, or, or to take an, the example from the Marguerite Duras chapter, the, the text, um, The Malady of Death, which has been understood in so many ways by so many different people. Um, and oftentimes people don't notice about it that it's, in, it's an explicitly homophobic text. And I think that Marguerite Duras understood it to be an explicitly homophobic text. It was written as an explicitly homophobic text. Um, so, but that, would, that was apparent to some people, lost on some people, some people didn't care, that kind of thing. And so I'm thinking, like, when you, th in, in critical practices, when you think about how meaning happens, how meaning comes and goes around literary works, I would, I would like for us to um, talk about that more and to have better tools for talking about that. 
Um, and that's, I think that that's also really importantly true about uh, in sexuality studies, I, since I think that um, oftentimes people talk about how modern sexuality emerged. You know, Foucault's date was 1869, 1870, 1871. I can't quite remember <laughs> what the date was. Uh, but there's that sense that there was a, a bunch of categorical, uh, there was a period of flux, and then the categories reorganized themselves. And somehow between the 1870s and 1940, things, a paradigm shift happened in and out. And then now things are the way they are. And I don't believe that, actually. Um, I think that um, that period of flux, if it ended, it started again. And so I think that, um, the, that there is no um, sense of a set of categories through which we understand sexuality. There is, um, there's a lot of implicitness that's, in the, that's operative right now about sexuality. And so I would like, I think, for in sexuality studies, too, for us to have tool, better tools for talking about the way that paradigms shift all the time, that they're always shifting. Yep. Yeah. yeah, great. OK. So uh, questions from you. Marie? I just have one question related to something you said. You said that um, your work is helping you understand um, what a kind of special type of language literature is. So can you say more about that? What is, what is special about literature as, as language or as communication, maybe? So, uh, I don't know if I exactly said that thing. What did I say that was that? Uh, <laughs> um, well, so one of the things that I uh, talk about in the book is, so if in the, if in the prequel to this book, I was talking about how the importance of same-sex sexuality being topicalized uh, as a serious, as something that, was a, that gave you bona fides as a, as a serious literary author. Um, uh, what I was noticing in this book was how you could see as people across the 20th century worked on sexuality, they began to work on the problem of implicitness or the problem of pragmatics. They began to understand that the, just by, say, repeated writings of scenes having to do with people trying to interact in a way in which sexuality was involved, they began to understand, uh, perhaps not on some conscious level, but on some level of the literary practice, that um, uh, an investigation of the non-denotational parts of language had to be part of these literary projects. Uh, and so when I get to the end of the book, and uh, in the last chapter, it goes a little bit out of chronological order, and I write about the novels of Robert Pangé. Robert Pangé, I think, was the master of that, since his whole, when he would describe his own project in literature, it would be that he was interested in tone, right? He was interested in people who talked, and the tone they had when they talked. And he would say that he, when he was waiting to write a new book, he would have to wait to hear the voice, right? And then once he would hear the voice, then the subject of the book would emerge out of the sound of the voice. And it just so happens that every voice he heard was queer in some way or another, or that he ended up writing about an imaginary part of the, the world uh, in a, uh, that, that represented the region in France where he spent a lot of time, uh, in which um, all sorts of misfit sexualities were present, and people knew about them in some way or other, and they housed them in their language, but uh, it was in all of these implicit features of language that they housed this knowledge about sexuality. So I am in, interested in particular in places in literature, I'm interested in novels in particular, where, where this concern for the other channels of language, uh, you could say, emerges. Right? So in fact, the book that I'm hoping to finish sometime soon is really about Proust and how he is keenly focused on um, the use of language to make uh, culture move in certain ways. And when culture moves because of the way people use language, it's because of all these other parts of language, not just because of the propositional content of language. Yeah. Okay. Oh, right down the back. Let's see if the wire stretches that far. <laughs> Thank you.
Hello. Hey. <laughs> um, I was wondering, the Bourdieu quote that you read first, the one from the beginning of the book, about uh, the precarious position and the kind of practical knowledge that comes with being in a precarious position in a social field. I was wondering, in some ways, I guess that sounds like the queer or the idea that um, queer sexuality somehow gives you this position within the field and this kind of inherent knowledge or this view of the way things are and of normativities. Um, so I was wondering if you did see it that way or if you saw it as distinct somehow from the queer and the way that misfit is also distinct from the queer. I mean, uh, I, I don't think that when Bourdieu was writing that passage, he was thinking about sexuality per se. I think that he was thinking about other forms of domination. Um, uh, so I think that he was thinking about class forms of domination and ethnic forms of domination uh, and, uh, and um, domination of capital over people who don't possess capital. That, that's kind of what he was thinking about there. So I don't know if you would find it useful or not to take all forms of precarity and say pre precariousness is queer. That seems to me kind of unhelpful, really. Um, And then maybe the other thing that I would say, which is why I, I moved a little bit away from queer towards misfit, is that um, not all people who think of themselves as queer are really precariously situated. I mean, they may be situated on the edges of categories, right? But not all places at which people find themselves situated, um, which makes them queer would make them precarious. Some people, yes, some people, no. So the precarity, precariousness, is in, involves you know, an array of variables coming to bear on somebody at the same time. So that's a way of saying I would probably not. There's a series of reasons why I wouldn't use queer in relationship to that passage. Um, I'm excited to read this book. It's, it's just come in the mail, but I haven't read it yet, so if it's addressed in this. Um, I guess I have a question on the subject of the making yourself into the, um, the idea, not the ideal interlocutor, but if this book is coming from a somebody um, and from that misfit position, uh -huh. the thing that came to mind was two quotes. One of them, a scholar who's writing on looking for Langston and talks about you know somebody, maybe someday someone will dream our moment into life and another from Walt Whitman who says, my ideal biographer has not yet arrived. Yeah. And so I was thinking in terms of that, and like when you were talking at Colette, you talked about the relationship she has to the past that maybe be, you know, my biographer has come and gone or something, but just about, um, I guess, two things. One, the sort of terms that you had to move around to see what, um, how best to make these misfit sexualities legible. Yeah. And to the way that they do sort of still cohere within queer studies with the emphasis on the gesture, ephemera, fleeting, the sort of terms that seem to energize your project, um, just in terms of how, how this project took energy within um, a moment where it seemed, you know, this, this book seems really ripe for the moment that we're in. And so I'm just, I'm curious about the, the ideal reader then and the way you moved among those terms alongside the ideal reader now, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for bringing up Looking for Langston. I think that that would be, obviously, um, couldn't exactly go in the corpus for this book, but it would be a, a really nice um, um, text or film to think about uh, with these terms in mind. And there's a, there's a, there's a place in the introduction where I, I, I address some of the previous work on queer historiography, like Chris Nealon's work on foundlings, um, uh, so that that uh, or, or or Heather Love's you know backward-looking negative affects work, um, and 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 I say so that all of that work seems really kind of helpful to me in understanding um, the way that people try to turn themselves at certain moments of time into the appropriate interlocutor for some past text, right? That maybe is something, uh, and maybe so maybe in a certain way, like if you were taking a the um, 
the question of these ladies of Langolan, I, I'm, I'm going to go there and visit their house. I'm going to do some latest Langolan tours <laughs> at some point in the near future. But you know, because their house is a tourist site, right? And it became a tourist site already while they were living in it, and, and <laughs> has remained such ever since. Because people really wanted to say, I understand the ladies of Langolan. You know, and there's lots of different understandings of them. Uh, they did have sex together. They didn't have sex together. You know, there's any number of, av of axes on which people try to imagine, yes, when I read their writing, I am the appropriate addressee for it, and I understand it. So I guess um, I'm interested when people do that, right? And then I'm interested also in the moments in the, the book that I'm talking about where people are imagining I hope someday there will be, or I hope somewhere out there in the world there is someone who, when they read this, will get what I'm talking about. Or even moments in Genet where he kind of says, you know, most of you aren't going to get this, um, but some of you might, right? So the sense that the address of the book is itself multivalent, right? So um, to me, I, I think. What's interesting when you, if you're going to be a, um, critical in some ways, then you want to be able to have those responses and say, oh, yeah, uh, I am the right person to re read the Genet novel, which I'm not the right person to read the Genet novel, but maybe, maybe that somebody will feel, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm the right person to read Colette's The Pure and the Impure, right? I get it, right? Something like that. Um, I, I, I like it that people have those moments, and then I think they should have a second moment, uh, which would be um, interesting that I just had that moment. Like, how do I think about my ability to have had that moment? Like, who am I? Like, how am I implicated in my world now? And how does the way I'm implicated in my world now interface with what was implicit in that text that I think I'm able to make legible, right? So I, I like that two phase. Process and I, I feel like that's politically important, you know, in some ways for people now trying to figure things out. Yeah, does that answer? Yeah, that's so helpful. Thanks. Yeah. Other questions? Um, yeah, Carl. So, um, so Michael, one of the one of the parts of the book that I really was fascinated with um, is the the section where you write about. Um, people attending and writing about and talking about the what were called the Bonneg uh, in Paris. Yeah, and I just was I just wanted to invite you to talk, uh, uh, if you'd like to, about how the kind of works work that you're doing in the book having to do with kind of misfit categories of sexuality um, was illuminated by you know that and other sections in the book where you address histories of race and colonialism as they interact with. <laughs> you know, many of the writers that you um, are working on in the book. Yeah, that's kind of, um, yeah, it, it comes up, there's that moment in the, um, right, so just to fill people in a little bit, um, when I said that uh, in, in, in the implicit social geography of the world that Simone de Beauvoir portrays in her novel L'Invité, which is translated into English as she came to stay, there is the sense that there is some bar that you can go to in Montparnasse, which uh, I mean, in, in Montmartre, in the, in the north of Paris, um, where you will meet, you know, lesbians and gay men, or whatever the words. Pederast is actually the word. Pederast is the word that they use. So that sense of a queer bar in Montmartre, and and there are people who have studied the queer culture of Montmartre, and in some ways, that's the world that Genet lived in. Um, but then the other space that the novel brings up uh, is a space in Montparnasse, so in south, um, I don't know what's called the left bank, uh, which is where, um, I'm having a hard time recalling the characters' names now, Françoise and... And Xavier. And, and Xavier, yeah, go. Uh, and the place that they actually go is, the, is a bar that actually existed called the Bal Negre. And so it's a complicated space on the Rue Brome, uh, which uh, went out of business for a while, but came back into business not so long ago. Um, but of course, it, well, what's interesting is that 
I think that you were the one who sent me to read this stuff. When they decided to reopen the bar, they wanted to maybe reference its storied past. So they thought they would just call it the Bal Negre again. Uh, <laughs> and then they had to be educated out of that. <laughs> and so now they call it the Rue Blomé, I think, or the I, 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 the Bal Blomé. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, and uh, so in, in sort of the, my tourism regarding my own book, I don't have to, I have to go to Wales, but I actually went and heard Lionel Luecki play at the Bal Blomé uh, a few times ago in Paris. And it was interesting just to be in that space and think, wow, so this is a space uh, that was opened as a meeting place for um, Caribbean people living in Paris to have a cultural uh, you know, a, a space for their own culture. And then, of course, there were some artist types like living in the neighborhood, and they thought it was a cool space. And so then they started coming, and then they invited their friends. And then before you knew it, there was a tourist industry um, about going to this bar. You, you know all this because I learned a lot of this thanks to references you sent me to. Um, so then that means that uh, there's, it's not just that Francoise and Xavier, the characters in the book, have this other um, space on the left bank where they can go to and not be identity-based in their same-sex eroticism. It's tied up with watching the culture of the Caribbean transplanted into Paris um, being enacted and the kinds of ways that they eroticize that for themselves. Right? So, that ties in with the sense of how do you understand sexuality in relationship to this cloud of other variables that surrounds it and impacts it. And um, the thing about the Beauvoir novel is that it doesn't understand it. It just mentions um, sexy black women dancing together, and then it mentions Baudelaire, and then it, and it mentions the Balnegan. So it just puts it out there that it's there in the culture, and it doesn't really know what to do with it. right? Um, but it, so, so that's a point where the novel is not able to be analytical about the material that it's presenting, right? And so um, to me, that's, a, that's a, a kind of unfinished business for me to talk ab about that more. And so I have this other book that I'm hoping to write next called Thinking About Sexuality with Novels, where I, I want to be able to talk about the way that um, categories circulate. Right, and so that you would be able to think about um, a text like L'Invité as just a node in a circulatory pattern for certain kinds of information that's moving ar around the globe. And so what would, it, what would it mean to start to think of what I, maybe you could call it the extended indexicality of novels, where novels index things in, almost in spite of their intentions, right? So they contribute to the history of sexuality un, uh, accidentally almost, right? So that's um, work that I'm, I'm hoping to do more of now. Yeah. And Tim? Can I ask a question? So uh, I've been struck by the way in which the word. You're going to be. Austerity uh, wants to hear you. I've been struck by the way in which the word. You're having a conversation about the role of literature. Uh -huh. um, the word literature seems to mean novels, and the word novel seems to mean literature. And I've been struck by the, the kind of models of reading that Michael was just describing in the question before seem to me to be very very generically based. I mean, novels are about games of identification where we say, yes, I am the reader for that, probably, right? Or possibly. Uh, and, I mean, you see the question, the question is, to what extent is this a discourse about literature? To what is it a discourse about novel? No, I mean, I think in the text that I work on, I mean, Montaigne, for example, says that poetry nails him. It pierces him and nails him. Yeah. Right? He never says, I identify, and then he quotes a line in Latin from Virgil, which he could never possibly identify with because it's talking about Cato. Right? So there are lots of different models of reading, but this model of reading seems to be one model of reading, and I'm wondering, and it seems to be connected to the novel. So could you help us? Because, I mean, I find the things you're saying about the kind of methodological models that you're working out of the way which you're trying to think about that the implicit to be incredibly compelling, yep. but they seem to be they seem to be limited in a certain kind of way to a particular genre, or am I just not hearing you? No, I, that's totally fair. Um, and 
so when I said that I want to write this book that's called Thinking About Sexuality with Novels, <laughs> you know, that's like, uh, that's because uh, that's my expertise in a certain way. And even though I'm not, it's not just about novels, someone, because there's many genres of texts that crop up in here, but they tend to be prose-based or life writing of some kind. But, uh, and, when, and the book that I'm working on on Proust is really about a stream of novel writing where you, it's very clear that novelists are influenced by each other and they learn lessons from each other. And they learn, novelists say, like Proust, learns from George Eliot and from Balzac about what you are doing when you portray scenes of conversation in which what's important is the non-denotational non aspect of conversation, right? So Proust learns that from other novels. So it's something that exists within um, a novel tradition. And so there is something novel specific that I'm working on. On the other hand, I also want to write a little short book called Literature and slash as Language and Use. And of course, most of my examples will be novels. But when you take the method and you say, OK, I want to understand. So if you take the example, Simone de Beauvoir publishes this novel, L'Invité, in 1939, I think it is. And just if you are obsessive enough and you read enough stuff from 1939, 1940, 1941, 1942, you're going to find a bunch of different people reacting to the novel. And you will see, oh, this novel's reception varied from person to person. And you can find real distinctive differences between people in different social locations reading the novel. So then their testimonies become a part of the array, the semiotic array that you are constructing to understand like, what is in the novel. So, so for me, what's interesting, uh, the way I'm describing it nowadays, is that it's not actually in the novel. There's a capacity that the novel has to allow certain kinds of interactions to happen. And they happen differently with different people, right? And this is where a notion like habitus would come in. Like there's a, there's an, there's a set of implied habitus in the text. And then there are habituses, habitus out there in different readers that somehow in an, create an interactive space in which the text emerges in different ways. That problem is not specific to a genre. That problem is specific to textual artifacts, right? right? So there are problems that are specific to textual artifacts. And then there is a novelistic tradition that interests me in particular. Thank you very much. We should, I think the last word, we should thank uh, our panelists and this one box. We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in the series.